Today's episode is one that I know a lot of you have been waiting for, because today you're going to hear from former P.S. Chris Buse. For those of you who are new to the murders at White House Farm, P.S. Buse was one of the first three officers on the scene, and he was also one of the most senior. A police sergeant at the time, Buse had recently returned to uniform, having spent some time as a detective. What's more, Chris Buse had also been a firearms officer, useful for someone called to such an incident. What follows is my mostly unedited interview with Chris, the only edits being my idle chit-chat, but for the most part, it remains as it was recorded. I've opted not to add commentary to this, but any loose strands will be picked up in future episodes. There are two interviews combined in this podcast episode. There are two interviews in this episode. The first interview was a general discussion about Chris's experiences of that evening, while the second is more targeted because it involved a discussion around the phone calls. Additionally, this interview was conducted via the phone and recorded by my trusty university dictaphone, so please forgive me if the quality is lacking. A final note before we get into it. I want you to remember that this interview was conducted in 2021, a full 36, almost 37 years after the murders took place, and that impacts in two crucial ways. The first is that Chris is recalling memories, an incident that he's repeatedly been asked to recall in the decades, and so, as with most people, our memories can betray us. The second is that this interview was conducted with the benefit of hindsight. Some of Chris's timings are slightly off, but let's remember, far from being a big conspiracy, these are recollections of something that happened so long ago. A huge thank you to Chris Buse for being a constant resource for me and for taking the time to do both interviews. Let's get into it. Could you um can you just like introduce yourself for me and and what role you play in this case and what you were doing at the time? Okay, I'm, I, my name's Chris Buse. Um, at the time of the Bamber incident, I was a uniformed police sergeant with Essex Police, stationed at Whitton Police Station. Uh, Whit- Whitton is a small town sort of in central Essex. About at that time, probably about twenty five thousand population. And it was what was called a subdivision of the main Chelmsford division mm-hmm. um, for the police in Essex. Um, and we covered a mainly rural area, apart from Whitton Town itself, which included um, where White House Farm is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, as I say, it's a small police station. It... Um, I'm trying to think how many how many people would have worked from there, but basically each shift there's uh, four uniform shifts mm-hmm. with most police stations, well they were then. Mm-hmm. Um, there'd been me as the sergeant, and I had uh, three uniform constables underneath me, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty standard for such a small place. Bigger place would have had more constables. Yeah. And on the, on the night in question, um, I was working slightly different hours to most of my shift, but I stayed on late because we had a lot of burglaries in the area, and I was with two of the three 
guys on the shift. One wasn't there. Uh, there was there's only two guys on after two o'clock. I'd stayed on till after two because we were wandering around a local um, business site that had a lot of burglaries, and we were trying to catch the burglar. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we're out doing that, so it had been. Ooh, I would have said approaching the, t- the times, to be perfectly honest. Um, I can't remember. Um, <laughs> it would have been about the time that Bamba phoned in to Chelmsford Police Station shortly afterwards. We got a call over the radio saying that uh, to go back to Whitton Police Station and phone the duty inspector at Chelmsford. The way things worked is if we left the station unattended, I mean, people who live in big towns mm. um, are used to 24-7 police stations. Yeah. With them, because of the level of staffing, if, if we were all out on patrol, we, we locked the place up and we went out. And we switched the phones over to Chelmsford Police Station, so anybody trying to phone us directly would end up going through to Chelmsford Police Station. That's exactly what happened. Jeremy um, had phoned Whitton Police Station directly, which uh, is fairly relevant later on when mm. you think about um, Had got transferred to Chelmsford Police Station and spoken to the duty inspector there, who in turn wanted to speak to me. So we went back into the police station, I phoned him, and the duty inspector told me what Bamba had said. And that's when we started going over to um, White House Farm. Mm. So, based on what you were told, then were you? You, I'm assuming you were told Jeremy had phoned, not Neville. Yeah, um, I mean, there was. I don't think from our side there was any suggestion ever, other than possibly um, a, a badly written uh, log. Um, I don't think there's any suggestion that anybody but Jeremy found us. Um, I don't think Neville, I think one of the logs might say that Mr. Bamba called, mm. and that's been assumed to mean Neville rather than Jeremy. Um, obviously, I don't know what was written on each log, but as far as I'm aware, I'm 99.9% sure that um, the only call received was from Jeremy. Yeah, and see, that's because the campaign of, um, they reckon, they've said they've got two logs, and one is written as if it's Neville calling, and one is written as if it's Jeremy calling. But it, to me, looking at it, it, it just looks as if the one call is somebody transcribing literally what Jeremy have said, and the other call is somebody transcribing what Jeremy says Neville has said, if that makes sense. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Kate. Mm. Yeah, that, that's basically what I've had. You've also got to bear in mind, and this sounds like really lame excuses, that, that policemen do make mistakes. I've made a few. Um, and it was early in the morning, so whoever was writing the logs initially was mm. possibly um, not the most wide-awake person in the world. Mm. And also... But, um, yeah, um, I, I think both... I can't say, but mm. both logs are open to interpretation to a, a certain degree, mm. but I, the, there's nothing more sinister than it's just the way they were written by the person writing them. Neither, mm. I, I don't know who that was in either case, mm. to be perfectly honest. And I've always thought that if there was a call off Neville, 
if if somebody had spoken to Neville that night, I don't understand why that wouldn't have come out sooner. Because obviously it was concluded at first it was a murder-suicide, so there would have been no reason to hide if, if Neville had made that call. So to me well, it doesn't make sense. The, the, what you just said is something that's always got me about the conspiracy theorists in this case. I mean, the police got nothing to hide. Mm. They weren't trying to cover anything up. In fact, they did the reverse up, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, perhaps. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, then, yeah, I know what you mean. So, so the, the logs, yeah, um, I, I, I think you've got to take them as almost being effectively, uh, it's always from it, an error possibly in transcribing, because what would have happened is um, they would have started, they would have had a telephone log at... Um, Chelmsford Police Station for the initial call. Mm. And bear in mind, in those days, they would have been handwritten on a special form, mm. which I believe used to be called a C1 for Communication 1. And, they, and you wrote anything that came into the police station over the phone on that. Mm. Um, or if, even if someone walked into the police station, actually. Mm. Um, the second log would have probably been started at police headquarters and certainly the initial entries would have included what was on the log at Chelmsford Police Station. Mm. Yeah, so I, I find those ex easily explainable, the two logs, but it's just something worth covering because I don't think, um, I think it's easy for the, the campaign to use things like that, but as soon as you get like a police officer's opinion or just somebody was there or anything like that, it's really easy to kind of explain away the, the like you said, the, the conspiracy. But um, the the other thing they say is that there was two cars dispatched, so there has to have been two separate calls. So um, do you know which car, which of the cars you were in in terms of the number? We were Charlie Alpha 7, CA7. Okay. Um, and what time did the next police car arrive? If you Roughly, you know, within... Um, it's quite a while. Um, it had been Charlie Alpha 5. Mm -hmm. um, the C stands for Chelmsford, by the way, C Division. Okay. Uh, a stands for Area Car, mm -hmm. which is um, a, the main incident response vehicle in any division or subdivision. And then the numbers just relate to which Area Car in the whole division. So... Um, Charlie Alpha 7 was the Whittam area car. Mm. Charlie Alpha 5 is the Molden area car. Molden being another town within Chelmsford Division, a separate subdivision like Whitt Whittam, but uh, also borders the White House Farm area. So basically what happened was um, the duty inspector information room decided if it was an armed incident, we'd need a bit of a backup. So he sent five out to back us up. Mm. Okay, that's yeah. That that ex again that explains um, the that aspect of the call logs as well. What did you What did you and your colleagues sort of not expect? Because I don't think anyone would expect it. But had you dealt with firearm situations before? Or was it totally out of the blue? And based based on the fact that go on, sorry, I interrupted. Oh no, I was only going to say. And based on the fact that Jeremy hadn't called nine nine nine, were you anticipating that it it was it wasn't going to be as sort of a big deal as it was. Well, that was part of the conversation I had with the duty inspector at Chelmsford and also, as as is on record, I had with Jeremy at the scene. Mm. Um, both the duty inspector at Chelmsford and I remarked that if it's that urgent, why didn't we dial 999? Mm. 
Mm. Um, but that was not a major issue at the time. The, mm. the major issue was to get us out there to see what was actually going on. Mm. Um, as regards firearms incidents, firearms incidents, even nowadays, uh, what's that, 30 odd years later, mm. um, aren't that common. I know they get publicised a lot when they happen, but when you look at them in respect of all the calls the police deal with in the course of a the day, they're, they're very rare, mm. and they were probably even rarer then. Um, yes, I'd been involved in reported firearms incidents before, mm. um, but the thing with any incident that's reported is you, you, you can't judge anything over the call, which is why you have to send someone to, to check it out, which mm. is what um, myself and the two constables Mm. did we went out there to to see what was what mm. so um just to go back to and you probably you've covered this so many times in different things but just um the the journey there the passing jeremy and and then what your first impressions of jeremy were well yeah well we, it's uh, as is probably being publicized it's a very rural district um and the guy driving our car steve mile knew the area very well. So we weren't hanging around, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Plus the fact that, I mean, he was a damn good driver um, and he knew the area and there was no other traffic on the road. So we, we he put his foot down and we shot past this small white Vauxhall, um, which, I mean, even though we were going fast, it was going slow. I mean, if it had been going any slower, it would have been stopped almost, mm. I would have said. Um, we got to the farm, had been told to expect to meet Jeremy there. There was no one there. And then after we'd been there for about five minutes, the white Vauxhall we just passed showed up and then it was Jeremy. Um, and he got out. Um, I have to say, didn't look particularly worried. Um, he was obviously, he obviously said he was concerned and I just got him to go over what he'd already said and then then things moved on from there mm. so yeah that's um again it all fits with what um what we now know doesn't it but um what uh how was he acting afterwards when you started to do the perimeter was he kind of keen for you to you and the other police officers to try and get in or was he you know was he yeah. did he seem impatient See, okay so if I, my mission as it were um was to see what was going on inside the house. But because the question of firearms had been brought up, obviously you don't just walk up and knock on the door or walk in through an unlocked door because mm. you don't know what you're going to find. Um, the first thing you do in a situation like that is calm the witness down, which is Jeremy, and get him to go over exactly what he knows mm. about it. You then make your next move based on what you're told and what you know. Um, so my questions to him were basically, what has happened tonight to make you call us? And he went over the fact that he'd received a phone call from his father, um, who sounded very distressed, saying that his sister had gone mad and she um, had a gun. And then the phone call had been hung up, or the phone call had been terminated. 
he actually said during conversation that what I what struck me as funny was um, that it sounded as though someone had put their finger on the the phone cradle. I mean, actually, when you think about it, not many people would know what that is nowadays because most people use mobiles. But yeah. if you're talking about an old-fashioned landline, it's the it's the the bits that get put down when you put the the handset back on top of it. And what Jeremy was saying was it sounded like someone had put their finger on top of that rather than putting the phone back down. Um, which I thought was very odd because you can't tell the difference. Mm. I suppose um, I suppose he needed it to be that someone had deliberately put the finger down because otherwise he couldn't have made a call out, I suppose. It's so, more mysterious. Isn't it? Well, yeah. But why did he just not say it got hung up? Mm. Yeah, I it's mean, strange. The, it is strange. The same thing would have happened. Yeah, same thing would happen if you put the phone, mm. the receiver down on the handset. Uh, the, the handset down on the phone. Mm. Um, it would have yeah. clicked off, and it would have killed the call. Yeah, they say people who um, invent stories over detail, don't they? So I wonder if perhaps that was it. He was trying to add too much detail to the story to make it seem plausible when actually he was just added suspicion well in retrospect i think that's exactly what he was doing but um when he actually said it that flagged something up in my head thinking why the hell was he said that mm, that's interesting that you what, that. why um I mean, it, it, i've said before it's been reported um i just well not, not, it turned out none of the three of us that were present with him initially um felt that he was um, genuine, mm. shall we say. We all thought he was telling a story. Mm. Um, he, he was trying to get us to go into the house, even mm. though I said, well, I'm not going in there if um, there's a likelihood of firearms being involved, because obviously we're not um, armed as a rule. Mm. Um after I satisfied myself that there was something genuine, there were lights on in the house, but no movement that we could detect, no sounds coming from it. And he said there were definitely um, his parents, his sister and her children in there. And given that, um, my first step really was to um, get in there. And I wasn't going to do that, so I, I called up headquarters this, this is um, right to differentiate between Chelmsford, Chelmsford Police Station, as far as I'm concerned, are now out of it. Okay. So there shouldn't be any confusion about communications. Um, usually, the main communication centre at the police headquarters, or it certainly was in those days, I think it still is, they're called the information room because that's where all the calls go into and that's where all their calls go out of. So all my communications were over a fairly long range radio with Essex Police Headquarters, not Chelmsford Police Station. Okay. Information room. Um, so I called them up, said that I wasn't happy with it. Firearms involved, suggestion of um, violence inside the house. And I asked for um, what I think was called in those days the Tactical Firearms Group. Um, to be called to the scene to effect an entry under the premises. 
his official term, is to go in there and see what... Basically, TFG, Tackle Firearms Group, were um, what the Americans called SWAT, Special Weapons and Tactics. Okay. They, they were a dedicated team who didn't do anything else but firearms work. Uh, so you'd get a transit or two transit loads from turning up and they'd have all the kit and it would be them that made the entry into the house. Um, so having said that, they're not on call 24-7 at that time of the day, which, I don't know, we're talking between 2 and 3 in the morning at this time. There wouldn't have been any on duty and it's uh, you literally have to call them out. Mm. Nowadays, it's slightly different. Yeah, you have armed response vehicles. Didn't have those in those days, though. Um, I mean, nowadays, armed response vehicles are 24-7. Um, in those days, it wasn't. So it took the time to assemble the team. They had to get into headquarters, again, in Chelmsford, pack the vans with the gear, and then get out to us. So you, you were looking at a good hour or more before they were going to turn up. Hmm. Um, which is another reason why Charlie Alpha 5, the other area car, was sent out, was to help us to contain the scene. Um, being a firearms trained officer myself, because they did have divisional personnel trained, but very rarely issued with firearms in those days, I knew exactly what the team would want. Okay. And that would be a plan of the house, so they knew where they were going. Mm. who was in the house, details of the people who were in the house, and also details of any firearms. Mm. So really that's what I got Jeremy to do. We gave him a clipboard with some paper on it, and I said, right, on this bit of paper, draw a plan of the ground floor, then on the next bit, draw a plan of the upper floor, Mm. and then write me a list of all the firearms and people who are in that house. And of course, as a result of him doing that, we he carry on a further conversation. He he kept harping on about his um, sister being a nutter, mm. his words. Um, I mean, we all, might all think they're nutter, but you don't say that to a member of the family. You'd say, oh, is your sister mentally disturbed then? Mm. But he started, it was him that started using the word nutter. Um and obviously I wanted to clarify if she could use the firearms. Mm-hmm. Um, there was quite a, quite a few firearms on, I can't remember, I'm, I'm going back. There were three or four firearms that he listed, I believe. I think so, yeah. But that, that is nothing unusual on the farm in, in the rural area. Because mm. um, they, they'd have firearms to keep down vermin, basically. Mm. And I, I think... Um, there was Anschutz's rifle that, that was the, the weapon used for the um, crime. And at least two, if not three, shotguns, I think, he listed. And I'm not even sure whether there was a, a pistol listed. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember. No, it's fine. It's fine. No, I can find all that. Yeah. And I said, would, would your sister know how to use any of these? And he said, well, she'd know how to use the rifle because I took her out for target practice only a, a little while ago. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I'm sort of, was she a good shot? That was more conversation. I mean, if you're holding a rifle right in front of someone, you don't really have to need to be a good shot. Mm. You just pull the trigger. Um, like I said, it, it, it's a small calibre weapon. I think it was only a T2, which is a very small bullet, but 
still deadly if you put it in the right part of someone. Mm. Um, not, but not as debilitating as being hit by a large caliber weapon mm. um, or a shotgun. Mm. However, it, it had the advantage over shotguns of having a magazine that held more than one or two rounds mm. um, and could therefore be used um, repeatedly, shall we say, without reloading. Mm. Um, when he'd done the list, and we're still waiting for firearms team to turn up, I thought the least we could do was probably do a reconnaissance of the area. Yeah. Um, from as, as safe a distance as possible. Now, I mean, with a rifle, even a small caliber one like an Anschutz that, shoot, that, that was used, um, you've got to be quiet away if you're actually out of range. Mm. Having said that, I relied on the fact that it was dark. We were all in dark clothing. And walking around the farm, you know, still keep us oh, a couple of hundred yards away from, from the, the main property. Mm. And that's what we decided to do. And uh, Steve Meyer, one of the PCs, and I took Jeremy to basically map out the perimeter of the scene, as it were. Mm. And it was, you know, it was quite a large farmyard. Um we kept to the edge of the farmyard rather than going near the house. But we had a clear view of the house and we could we could see that there were lights on upstairs and downstairs. Mm-hmm. The um, the kitchen window curtains weren't drawn. Um, I can't remember about upstairs whether the curtains were drawn or not. Mm-hmm. There was a dog barking, Jeremy, or a whining barking. Jeremy remarked on that that was unusual because if there was anybody there to stop it barking, they would, which mm. is quite obvious, as, as we all would, with a barking dog. Mm. Um, while we were walking around, I, mean, I think this is one of the things that people mention, in that I thought I saw movement. Yeah. I did think I saw movement. Um but I, I, it was quite a bright moon that night. There were moon reflections in the windows. And one of the windows upstairs, which I might it might have been the window to the landing, but I don't hold me to that. Mm. Um, you've got lots of things that happen at night. Not many people do go out at night, but that's usually in well-lit areas. Not many people go out in the middle of the country at night and wander around deserted farmhouses um so what you got to realize is the moon reflects off glass there are imperfections in glass so a pane of glass even though it looks flat when it's in the window has imperfections in it that scatters the light in different ways and if you are looking at a reflection at one angle, it will change if you move to another angle. And I've, and that's that's basically what happened with me. I, I moved, um, and in so doing, the angle changed to the window, and I thought, hang on, was that movement? And I, I literally told the other two to stay where they were, and I, I backed up. In my, I didn't turn around and walk back. I backed up in my steps. And as I did that, 
I got the impression of movement again, but that was merely the reflection. It was the reflection changing from one shape to another. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think that's become such a red herring um, in the case yeah. because I can. I, I didn't see movement. I thought I did. Mm. I told them that to, to freeze, basically. Mm. I retraced my step or backed up in my steps, and I was satisfied. It was just our movement that, that had caused the impression of movement. Mm in the window and there's no more to it than that and i imagine you were all on high alert as well you know knowing that there was someone potentially well, with a gun yeah. and and so <laughs> Wait, you, I, I, I was waiting for someone to stick a gun out of the window and shoot at us yeah so it's better to be safe than sorry so i suppose if you see something your first instinct is going to be oh oh i think i've seen something and then but like you said you you double back and you knew you, you what it was in the end and again i think that's what's become and I, I, what was also going through my head was i shouldn't really have brought a civilian round the back of a farm that is insecure and possibly got a gun pointing out of it. Because I, I thought, oh, Jeremy might get shot as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that really made me do that was to uh, um, clarify to him why I wasn't going in. He, he kept on trying to get us to go in there and then. Mm. And I kept having to explain that and using his own words, I said, look, you, you, you say there are five people in the house and we're going to have two options probably. We're going to go in there and find five people perfectly okay, but possibly um, one of them's got a gun. Or we're going to go in there and find four dead people and a nutter with a gun. Mm. And I said, either way, I'm not going in there without the arm team. Mm. going in that place and I, I think walking around the back not only was it a bit of reconnaissance for the arm team um but it was also to show jeremy that it wasn't really a viable thing to go in mm. yeah so um which he wanted us to do I, I don't know. uh yeah fair enough perhaps i'd want it to be resolved quickly but what was also going through my head was Keith trying to get us to go in. Mm. If, it, if, if it was my family in that house and I'd got a distressing call, I'd have made a quick 999 mm. call and got over there myself and gone in there to see what was wrong. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. If he was that keen for people to get in the house, I don't understand why you wouldn't phone. 999 and obviously by the crime scene we know that um, Neville was likely injured if he made a call he would have probably been injured at the time and it seems really strange to me that he wouldn't call he wouldn't have mentioned on the phone that him and his wife had been shot especially with no. with those two boys in there you think he'd have you know if it had have gone down the way Jeremy said I don't understand why you wouldn't have said um, look I'm injured your mum's injured and I'm worried about the two boys it just it just to me doesn't make any sense at all yeah, no, it, 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 not really. Um, uh, you're dealing with someone that's going mad with a gun. You, if you make a phone call, you're going to dial 999. Exactly, yeah. You're not going to phone his sons in the next village. Yeah, and he says it's because of privacy. And, you know, if it was 
in terms of Shiva's actual mental health problem, then I can completely understand wanting to be private. But if you've been shot multiple times, that you know, at that point, there is no way it's going to be private. Like it, it's past that point. At that point, not really. Yeah, you've got. Yeah, you've sort of gone gone past that, as you say. Yeah. Yeah. Um. One other thing. So you made the decision to call the firearms team. Um. And you you've explained pretty well why that was. Um. But just to clarify, it was because you were suspicious that there was just no no movement or anything. And given what Jeremy had told you, I, I had no more to go on than what Jeremy told me, and, and the fact that everything seemed silent in the mm-hmm. house. I, I must admit, I so that sort of give you heightened my concern. Bet, my bet was on four dead people in a nutter with a gun, with a very strong second possibility of four murders and a suicide. Mm, that's really interesting. So Based on what Jeremy had told me, that uh, so. Uh, there was still a doubt there. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's no way I was going to go in there. Yeah, oh, I can't, I, I can't imagine most people would, especially if you're like, like you said, an unarmed officer. If you're, if you're not got that protection with you, there's no way most people would. Um, the, one of the big other concerns that has been raised with this case, and I think this is why they've played onto that movement so much, is that there's the suggestion that Sheila was still alive. Um, one of the things that I find really frustrating is this suggestion that she, that. Um, the firearms team were in conversation with someone from inside the farm. Um, was there any, from what you knew when you were there, was there any suggestion that there was anyone talking to the police other than Jeremy? No, no suggestion whatsoever at any time. Um, what might have been misinterpreted was the fact that before the, the tactical firearms group enter the building, bearing in mind, um, okay, it might not have been exactly what, was on the recent drama because I think that's based more on what would happen now. Um, you're going to have four guys going there at least with another backup team for um, at least one of those that have had a shotgun. No, in those days, I think I'm right in saying none of them would have had um, automatic weapons. Um, I mean, nowadays they'd all be armed with Eckler and Cox. Mm. submachine carbines but in those days out of the four that actually went in you'd have had one with a shotgun and three with just revolvers basically 38 Smith and Wesson revolvers mm. and you've had another team outside ready to go in to back them up um, pretty much the same um, before they go in they, they challenge someone that you, you imagine yourself being in the house and you get four burly policemen burst in pointing guns at you they have to warn you that that's what's going to happen before they go in Mm. that's what the talking into the house was Mm. whether somebody said quiet i think i might have heard something that's Mm. only natural um that might have happened but there was no conversation because there was no one left alive in there Mm. i the way i interpret that particular piece of evidence as well where it says uh to quote exactly it says conversations with someone in uh, someone from in the farm i've always taken that to mean jeremy because if it was someone in the farm i think you'd say conversation with someone in the farm uh, it, it's so silly but the word from someone from in the yeah, farm um, implies that it's I, jeremy to I, me. I, I don't know the the, the full passage yeah. you're quoting um i it, it, I mean, you can say as a result of conversation with someone at the farm or in the farm, but is it in the farmhouse, which is what they were interested in? 
yeah and that's another point actually someone else raised that it says farm yes not farmhouse so again i i go with that being jeremy but there was no of a challenge being made and again the defense have clung on to that as as um evidence that there was someone alive whereas like you said it's probably just protocol and it's just the way things are done that there's a challenge first yeah they have to challenge before they go in yeah I mean, you've got two sides of the coin. Yeah, that's warning someone with a gun that they're going in. But that person isn't going to be much of a threat after they've gone in because that's what they're expecting. Mm. Um, they're giving someone a chance that is either armed and wants to surrender to surrender or someone who isn't armed to say, look, I'm in here, don't shoot, I've not got a gun. Mm. That's effectively what they're doing. Mm. And then if if they get neither of those responses, they make a forced entry, which is what they did. Mm. I think the door was open, so they didn't actually have to force it. Mm. Um, but, um, shall we say, they go in without permission. Oh, yeah, that, that's a really good way of putting it, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of, um, in America, they've got the no-knock rule, haven't they? So I think sometimes people get, they don't understand police protocol, and so they assume that it's possible for you to enter a house without... Um, making aware I, I'm not sure if you know about the Brianna Taylor case but it was one of the big Black Lives Matter cases and and the issue with that was that it was but, a no knock which one was that where the um, detective went into the wrong flat no they went into yeah well technically they went oh, into... oh no that was where she called up and they it was a boyfriend going mad or something and they shot her instead or something it, it, they went to the house um, to see if because they'd had a complaint about her ex-boyfriend who had drugs and when they got there she'd broken up with him and it was her and her new boyfriend and because they did a no-knock warrant they burst in with guns um, and the, the, what the, the boyfriend that she was with at the time shot one bullet back because he was he thought it was probably her ex and they shot him and then shot her dead. And, and it's frustrating because, obviously, he shot first, but it was a no-knock entry, so yeah. he had no idea what was going on. Yeah, no, I, I, I know American law is similar to ours at its very basic level, but mm. operationally they have to be different because of the way their culture is. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, sometimes I, people I get a what you're saying. And, and the case you mentioned, yes, I had seen it reported and read about yeah it's everywhere it, well it, it's been her name even if not the case her name has become kind of known now yeah. because of the George yeah George. I know I know exactly what you mean um yeah no that it's just a, it's just an interesting about. comparison there, there, isn't there's it? a lot of things to do with firearms in America that uh ooh, let's not get sidetracked but I I, yeah. I, I just can't believe that I have those rules over yeah, same, same. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. Like I said, I, I, I think I'm not sure if I've said before, but yeah, I do, I do uh, a lot with politics, and yeah, one of my. No, no, I, I mean, by yeah, big things. No, like that. and stuff like that. You've got to have to protect the innocent exactly. in a way. Yeah, but this suggests their gun laws in general that they've got. So many guns available. Oh, it's ridiculous, the yeah. The fact that you can go and buy a pint of milk and buy, like, an automatic rifle, <laughs> it's just a bit concerning. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, without being sidetracked, and, and, and actually, in all fairness, the police probably haven't got the best relationship with no. the public out there. No. Um, yeah. Probably because they always have to assume they're going to get shot out of face, mate. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And I, I, that's why I don't think it makes anyone safer. Um, I, much, I feel a lot safer in our country than I, I have been there, and I didn't feel particularly safe. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so but this theory that Sheila was alive at the time um I find 
pretty difficult because the well, I, don't, I don't know where that comes from. You, what you've got to bear in mind, um, and we, we're going back the logs. The the, the the raid team would have would have had open mics, so they are heard by the rest of their team on site. And, whether there was a link through to the information room at headquarters, I don't know. Mm. But a lot would have been made of what they're saying. And the adrenaline's flowing when you go. And of course it is. I mean, they're, they're expecting to get shot at any minute. Yeah, I imagine. Um, so their adrenaline's going at 101% or whatever. Mm. And so and they... It's a bit like that quiz program on the TV, Say What You See, I can't remember what it is. Catchphrase. Um, yeah. <laughs> My mum's a huge fan. They say what they see and they'll go in and they say, man on the floor. If they see a rug bunched up, they might see another body on the right, something like And then they say, oh, no, shit, that's a rug. Mm, but they've already said it and it's already... They've already said it, so it comes out on the lock. Mm, and if you said after that, sounds as though they're trying to cover up. Why would they be trying to cover up? Their job is to get in and make the scene safe. Mm. They don't want to make problems for themselves. Um, I, I don't know what happened. I know that it said that they've said there are two bodies downstairs. They've implied that there's two bodies downstairs. They The, the latest is they, that they're now implying... That is, what they, that, that is what they honestly thought when they went in. Yeah, I believe that as well. I do believe that. Um, I believe that they, they thought potentially Neville was a woman because he did have long hair. And I imagine that, it, you know, the, the mess that that kitchen was in, I, it probably wouldn't have been particularly easy to look through the window and notice who who it was. So. Uh, what, what they've got to do is, um, at the same time, obviously the main thing is to look after the four people that are actually the four people, the four people in the raid team. They have to make sure that none of them get shot. Um, they have to also make sure that they don't shoot anyone who shouldn't get shot and then neutralise anybody that isn't doing what's told. Mm. Um, part of that, the procedure is that they shout out what they can see. Mm. If, if you're pumped up with adrenaline, which they would have been, as with anybody, um, they might have seen, like with me thinking I'd seen movement and it was only the reflection of the moon in glass, mm. they might see something on the floor that they think is another body. Mm. Um, and they'll shout that out right away, just so everybody's aware of what's in the room. When you then clear the room, they get into that room. They then are happy no one's pointing a gun at them they make sure that that room is safe. Mm. Then they move on to another room. Um, the second lot of four will probably come in and secure the downstairs. I don't know how they did it, but you, you know, you, you're going to have people moving from room to room, and, and until you say that each room is safe, any room can have someone pointing a gun at you in it. Mm. And that's what they're doing. Going through, through a big farmhouse, you've got lots of rooms, one room at a time. Mm. Um, so there's lots of um, opportunities um, to make relatively small mistakes, but you make mistakes because you're erring on the side of safety. Mm. 
you don't want to shoot someone you shouldn't get shot. And um, let's be honest, you don't want to get shot yourself. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I imagine it was quite a chaotic scene as well when they went in and just didn't know what they well, were expecting. You know, obviously, there'd been some sort of a fight in the kitchen. And yeah. He, he got Neville lying there. Um, there was bits and pieces strewn all over the place. Yeah, so you're right. Yeah, very chaotic when they went in. Yeah, did you did you actually enter the house or were you outside the not house? At, not at that time, no. Mm. Um, a little while later, um, I, I actually didn't go in because it was then a scene of crime and uh, crime scene. You don't go in unless you need to. Mm. Um, I, I, I did have a wander towards the back door and had a look through the back door just out of personal curiosity. Mm. Um, but no, I never. I, I, I didn't go in the house and go upstairs. In fact, by that point, um, the only people that would have been in the house, once the firearms team had secured everything, and also secured any firearms that were in there, but the only people that should have been in there were the scenes of crime officers, the forensics people, mm. and possibly the senior detective officer and whatnot. But no, the fewer people going to a crime scene, the better. Mm. I think um, one last sort of big thing that's worth touching on is um, obviously you were the one who delivered the news to Jeremy. And again, I know this is something you've co- you've probably spoken about um, plenty, but it's just better to have it from like first source than we having to use other sources. So I'm just wondering yeah. if you could just explain how he reacted and what your thoughts were about that. Oh, well, yeah. Um, I told him that everybody was dead. Um, now, delivering bad news to people is part of the policeman's job. And um, I've done that many, many times before. And you can never second guess the way that people are going to react. Um, having said that, most people um, react as though nothing's happened. Not many people break down right away. Although I think unless you've never experienced that situation, you might think they do. Most people go into shock. As soon as you tell them shocking news, they go into shock. Mm. Um, And and the reason I use the word for telling them and then receiving it is shock. And and the body makes you freeze. You don't, well, the majority of people, in my experience, don't react by breaking down. Mm. Um, Yeah, they might well do. After 30 seconds, they might well do after five minutes. Some might take hours or days before they really react to, to grief. Mm. Um, Jeremy broke down almost immediately, I told him, which, again, is not unheard of. But I just got the inf- I It was then, I, I'd have been less suspicious if he'd done nothing mm. and just kept quiet. He, he, I got the impression he was forcing himself to cry. That's interesting. Um, and I, I know I'm now, we're now many years into the future from that point. I think a similar comment was made at the funeral. Um, when he was crying, I think one of the, Witnesses said that they thought he was forcing, I think his girlfriend did. Well, mind you, she knew a lot more than she was letting on at that mm. point, but we didn't know that then. Mm. Um, I think 
one, if not more people at the funeral thought he was putting on an act, shall we say. Mm. And that was certainly the impression I got when I broke the news. Mm. I thought, okay, don't react. I wouldn't be suspicious there. That wouldn't be suspicious because that's actually not reacting is probably what mm. most people do initially. Some people break down, but you can tell when someone's grief-stricken. He wasn't grief-stricken. He was... He was like a kid forcing himself to cry. Mm. Um, I've said this a couple of times. I've, I've got four daughters, and um, they're all wonderful and grown up now. But when they were kids, they were horrible some of the time. Most most of the time, they were lovely. But you get a kid who wants something and thinks, if I'm not going to get this, I'm going to cry. Yeah. And they force themselves to cry. And... You can laugh at it. But with Jeremy, that is the impression I got. Mm-hmm. I said, you're lucky. I didn't say, sorry. I said to myself, perhaps, I thought, you are putting that on. Mm-hmm. Now, that didn't make me suspicious as to what really happened there. I, I think the first thing that flashed through my mind, you don't really give a shit whether they're dead or not. Mm-hmm. If... That is exactly. You don't really care, do you? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think that's that's more of a um, I not. I think that's more interesting because it's as if there was just that feeling there straight away, and that's without any evidence. I think that's a really good way, interesting way of putting it. I think that's quite interesting. I I didn't think you've done this yourself Mm. and made a cover up. Mm. I just thought you don't really care. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's um, that's the opinion that I, I thought I was thinking about that yesterday. I watched that um documentary, Faking It, was it the one with the they analysed his body language, and uh, I watched that and and. Oh, when... you talking about the thing on Quest Red? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I watched that and I found that really interesting because when they were saying about and I was thinking to myself then exactly what you were saying. I was thinking, yeah, it's it even if he's not guilty, he's definitely not showing as much sadness to say you know me or you would and I found that really interesting that you essentially reinforced what I was thinking as well it's interesting yeah I mean I think if, if we're talking about the Quest Red program they analysed the way he was crying at the funeral that's it I? that's it yeah it was really interesting that was um and I think comment had been made on that we have the benefit of trained people observing the action and analysing it with a, shall we say, an empirical um, reason for why they made that analysis. Mm. Um, uh, the the people at the funeral, and the, I, I think there was at least one, if not two or three people who it was later reported. They all thought he was putting on an act as well, mm. and that's just with natural human instinct. Yeah, and that's what I got. Bear in mind, I, I, I thought there was something strange all during my interaction with him. I was with him for I don't know three, four hours. I don't know. Mm. Um, and there's just something that wasn't right about him. Mm. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, there was um, a comment made about a Porsche or something, was it? Was it to you or one of your colleagues? And that's always, 
um, haunting comment as well, where he was like, oh, I'm going to get my Porsche now or something, wasn't it? I think, yeah, he said that to Steve or Bob, the other two guys there. I don't remember him saying it, but mm. I remember one of them saying, when we left the scene, I mean, um, it's no disrespect, but there were lots of people at the scene by the time we left it. Yeah. Um, which was probably around about nine o'clock in the morning. And given that I should have been off at one o'clock, I was feeling fairly tired. Mm. Um, and I knew I had to be back in the station for two o'clock that afternoon. Um, <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was like, oh, God, I'm knackered. I'm not going to get any sleep again. <laughs> um, and anyway, the three, uh, it's what we call the circus had descended upon the place. And that's all the senior officers that feel they ought to be at the place, plus all the people who are actually doing the work. So there were lots of people, scenes of crime, senior uniform officers, senior CID officers. I think Taff Jones was there by the time then. Stan Jones was as well. Mm. Um, and the three of us just got back in Charlie Alpha 7 and drove back to Whitton. And we are all very quiet for about 30 seconds. And then I just said, what do you think? And the other two said, he's done it, hasn't he? Mm, I said, well, he's not right, is he? It's <laughs> <laughs> all I said. It's <laughs> <laughs> so interesting to hear that like, there, was, there was sort of underlying concerns and suspicions there straight away. Well, you're not trained psychiatrists or psychologists and well, actually some people might be now. Um, but we, we, we weren't, the three of us. We just got a, a wealth of experience behind us and we didn't like what Jeremy had acted like. Mm. It, it didn't fit in with our normal perception. Mind you, the three of us could be wrong, I'll say that. Mm. Did but you raise your concerns with anyone? Well, I didn't have to. Mm. Um, as I said, I, we, we went back, signed off. Uh, I don't think we would... We were meant to be back for two, but I cleared it with the early turn sergeant that because we'd been on all night, um, we wouldn't be in until three. That gave us an extra hour. Because none of us lived actually in Whitton, actually. I think Steve lived near us, but, but Bob and I both live in Colchester or lived in Colchester which was a good 40 minutes drive. Mm. And so we knew that with travelling, we, we wanted to try and cover a bit of sleep. So I said, we'll be in a bit late. But anyway, getting back, I didn't have to because I got back in perhaps about half two that afternoon. And one of the first people I saw was one of the detective constables involved in the case. And I wish I could remember who it was. Mm. Um, I think it was Steve, whose surname I can't remember to be burnt bless him. <laughs> um, anyway, he said, what do you reckon to it, Chris? And I said, he's done it, hasn't he? And he said, that's what we all think. Oh, that's interesting. And he was talking about um, local CID, which is three detective constables and their detective sergeant, Stan Jones. Mm. And so I got in. As I say, early in the afternoon, they'd been on it all morning. And this uh, DC came up to me and said, what do you think? I said, he's done it, hasn't he? And he said, that's what we're looking at. 
Mm. So there was suspicion there from from the beginning, even though they did. Locally, yes. Mm. Yeah. At Whitton, Stan Jones, as well as as history is borne out. So we, that sounds rather grand. As history is borne out, um, <laughs> I'll keep that in. <laughs> Stan, Stan was never happy about it. And he and I had a sat down, we sat down and I, I basically talked to him the way I'm talking to you now, what mm. I thought. Perhaps a few more swear words put in. Um, <laughs> but uh, Stan Jones is a damn good detective sergeant. Mm. Um, Kath Jones, I'm sorry, I know he's one of your countrymen. <laughs> this, this is not racial. Um, I didn't know that well. Um, I didn't have a lot of confidence in him mm. for a couple of reasons. It's just a sort of brief thing about the uh, incident logs and the call log and what your takeaway is from the two separate documents, what you said in the email, essentially. Okay. Okay, well, well basically, the two documents we're talking about, and the, I've, I've just got a download from the one of Jeremy Bamber's supporter sites, and in, in a way, they're, they're reversed. The one on the right is the one we should be looking at first. Um, and that's the one that... Um, I think it's, it's timed at 0336, but I, I personally query that time, but never mind. But the sender is shown to be a Mr. Bamber of Nine Head Street gold hanger. And the receiver is shown as 1990, who's, which is shorthand for PC 1990. That, that, what that form is, is a form C1, as it was called. And in the days before computerisation, all, all, all reports, shall we put it like that, had to be made, um, had to be recorded on that form. Didn't have to be verbatim, it just, just the general details of what someone had reported and it needn't be something serious that it could be someone reporting a lost dog or cat or something like that so what what, what we've got in the right hand form where it says receiver 1990 is it's jeremy bamber's first call um and what 1990 has done is is it's just jotted down notes to effectively to say what the general import of the call was mm-hmm. um it didn't have to be more than that what he's then done if we go now to the left hand form yeah um which says three twenty six ten 10 minutes earlier again don't put too much credence in the timing and, and that's not trying to cover anything up it says top left that the sender is cd which is Charlie Delta. That's code for Chelmsford Divisional Police Station, the police station in Chelmsford. Then brackets 1990, which is the collar number of the officer calling into information room, um, which is the same guy that's taken the details on the other forms. So really both forms report the same call. The, the first one reports it from Jeremy Bamber, the second one reports a call from the PC that spoke to Jeremy Bamber, telling information who deal with the whole county. They're the ones that would deal with stuff anywhere. He's telling them, look, I've had this call. 
Um, and these are the details. So the references to a Mr. Bamber at White House Farm doesn't mean to say that the calls come from Mr. Bamber at White House Farm. It means that the call relates to someone called Mr. Bamber at White House Farm. Also says daughter Sheila Bamber. It doesn't suggest that it comes from her either. Um, it's just a basic record to say, look, here's an incident. This is the information we've got. This is what we're doing about it. Um, and on the second form, you see a load of units dispatched, starting with CA7 at the top left, um, which was the Whittam area car, um, and ending in Quebec, India, uh, Quebec, India, I think, or Quebec Zulu. Actually, if it's Zulu, that would be a dog unit. Um, but you've got Quebec Kilos, they're the firearms team. Mm. CAs are area cars, twin man cars usually. Um, and you've got one there from each of the, the subdivisions. You've got CA7 Whitton, CA5 I think was Molden. And if CA6 wasn't another Molden car, then it would be Braintree, which is another town in the same division but it's it, nothing suspicious or untoward I, I i can't see why the bamba camp say it's a call from neville bamba yeah i think um initially this document really did throw me um and i before i started looking into the case i would have probably said that was suspicious but then the more and more you look at it and the more you rationalize it the um there's something oh it says at the bottom of the log as well uh, information passed to CD by son. So, yeah, it automatically takes away what the Jeremy Bamber campaign are actually arguing. That one sentence just dismantles what they're saying. In yeah, it, 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 it's, it's just shorthand of a message. It's it's not evidence. Yeah. Or it's not intended as evidence. It's intended as a record of a message received. Yeah, and the way I would view it is that, um, personally, the, the, the officer who took a call, which is, I think was Michael Collins, he wrote down literally, sort of, roughly what Jeremy Bamber said, and then he's, tra- he's tra- spoken that to, um, I can't remember the other guy, and he's written it down as... The way that Jeremy says Neville said it, if you if that makes sense. So he's written it as Neville is supposed to have said it, as opposed to writing what Jeremy have said. And I just think that's all it is. That's. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the two documents that you, you've shown me, which come from the, the site, neither say it's come from Neville Bamber. One says it, the, the first one, done by 1990 in the first place, um says actually says the sender is Mr. Bamber at Nine Head Street Gold Hanger. That's Jeremy, not Neville. Mm. Um and then the second form mentions Mr. Bamber Whitehouse Farm, but that that's within the body of the message. That's reporting what whoever's filled that form out has been told. And in this case it clearly says that the, the person reporting is PC nineteen ninety from Chelmsford Police Station. So how anybody can say that has come, that's a record of a call from Neville Bamber, where it beggars imagination, because there's nothing on either form to suggest that. If, if you're looking for a conspiracy, you can find one. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But you, you have to know what you're looking at. Mm. I'm the, right, the, the form that PC1990 actually filled in with, I'm very familiar with, because every police station in Essex used them. 
every officer in Essex would have had experience running them in. The one done in the information room is only used in information room. No experience in that form whatsoever. But it is essentially the same form, or, or it has the same use, shall we say, mm. in that in the, it, it's to record a report made. Um, and in this case, neither is the, is the same report, effectively. Um, neither of which uh, it, it, it didn't come from Neville Bamber, it came from Jeremy. So this is relating to the call that he made. Um, I think he dialed Whitton Police. He, he took the time to dial Whitton Police Station. Yes. He had to look for the number um, first as well. We weren't in, so we switched our phones over to Chelmsford, which is why it went through to Chelmsford. I mean, if he dialed 999, which I, I raised with him while I was talking to him at the scene before the firearms team went in, I said, why didn't you dial 999? I mean, that's something that, certainly in those days, and I think nowadays, kids are taught from a very early age, if you need help quickly, dial 999. Yeah. Mm. He didn't, did he? Nope. I've actually looked at that, and... I believe the 999 number was like, it was started in like 1950 or something. So it, it's not as if it was new. It had been around for a long time. No, no, no. It actually started in the 30s, but it, I don't think it, it went nationwide until the 50s, as you say. I think it started in London and some bigger cities. Um, well, yeah, you've also got what to look at. I mean, Jeremy didn't dial 999. Let's imagine a situation where Neville managed to get to the phone and his life wasn't in imminent danger and he had a chance to make a phone call. Even though, I mean, he's, he's what? If, if age 62 is right at the time, he would have known about the 999 system. Yeah. So we, 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 we're talking about the 80s. It's, it, it's Everybody knew about 999. Neville wouldn't have phoned Jeremy. Yeah. If it was that violent an incident, he'd have called 999 to start off with. Hmm. I agree with you. And also, like... Um, the fighter pilot, an ex-fighter pilot, I believe, um, Neville. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, funnily enough, not that... I'm, I'm ex-Air Force. Oh, are well, you? Yeah. Before I joined the police. Fighter pilots... Hmm. don't mess about they do what is necessary when it's necessary he wouldn't have wasted time calling Jeremy he'd have dialed 999 if he'd had the chance hmm. to dial Whitton police station hmm. Can, let's, let, let's just get real for a minute <laughs> yeah and the, the other thing that um really makes me laugh as well is this idea that Jeremy uh, Neville somehow managed to get away from Sheila to f and found the time to make two calls without her knowing or without her intervening. I mean, surely she would have, without sounding crass, surely she would have, you know, disarmed Neville first because he would have been... Allegedly, the guy's getting shot. Yeah. And you don't go up to shoot someone, get fought off and go off and shoot someone else while someone goes to make a phone call. You make mm -hmm. sure the person you're fighting is well, let's put it bluntly, he's dead. Yeah. Or at least can't interfere with what, what your plan is. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that Neville... Um, well, I don't know. 
I would have thought there was no way that Neville would have had a tussle with Sheila. Um, and then she, for some reason, broke off her attack to give him time to, to make a phone call. Mm, exactly. And two phone calls, if we go with this theory that the defence are going with. Well, <laughs> no, no, it's because Neville never made a phone call. Exactly, yeah. There, there was, there's, there's no cover-up. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the police, Essex Police, sort of put their hands up and said, look, we really cocked up on this in the early stages. That's why it's, you know, a little bit worrying what happened, happened subsequently. Because if you lose confidence in a system, you can never fully regain it. Um, and so you've got a situation where a theory was accepted far too readily without enough investigation. I mean, on day one, mm. um, it was accepted um, that it was a a multiple murder and one suicide. No consideration was given by the senior officer in charge that it might have been five murders, mm. opposed to four murders and a suicide. Um, and that's where it started to go wrong, and unfortunately it went wrong very, very early. Mm. The police actually had nothing to cover up. If, if there was anything they had to cover up, it was their poor investigation at the start. Mm. Um, and that was actually conducted. There was a full inquiry yeah. after after the, the court trial and, and the conviction. Mm. Um, anybody who had anything remotely to do with this um, were called in and interviewed by senior officers including myself and and that wasn't to try and cover things up that was just where the hell did we go wrong initially in this Mm. and and the idea of that was let's not make the same mistakes again Mm. and Um, let's be honest Essex police are not the first police to make mistakes and it will happen again undoubtedly so it's Unfortunately, it just happened to be Essex Police's, at the time, most high-profile case, unfortunately. And... Yeah. I mean, it, at the end of the day, um, the first form, the, the one received by PC 1990, um, whether that had anything, you could go over on the other side just to put extra details in if you want. But they're just saying, look, we got a call from Mr Bamba at such and such a time. This is what he said. This is how we've dealt with it. That comes down to the bottom where it says result because it had to be, you had to, before the sergeant, which he has done, down the bottom is PS40, it says, mm. um, has signed it. Uh, he signed it off saying, right, we can forget about this. That's our involvement done with. Um, and you can see they've written in the result, five persons killed, CID dealing. That, that's not very informative, and it's, it's a little bit laconic and harsh, but that is the result. Mm. Bear in mind, this is filled in in Chelmsford Police Station, and although Malden and, and Collins and Darcy are in Chelmsford Division, they are not dealt with directly by Chelmsford Police Station. It's all police hierarchy, but Chelmsford... Divisional Station, CD, Charlie Delta, didn't deal with stuff that happened out there. I mean, they'd send assistance if necessary. That was Malden, uh, that was Whitton's batch, where I was. That's why I got sent out 
and not the duty sergeant from Molden or Braintree. I got out there, but once it was that serious, then headquarters took over, and and you you had headquarters staff who have responsibility for the whole county coming in. I mean, Chelmsford, their only interest was let's get this off our books. That mm. sounds harsh, but that's the way you deal with things. Mm. You, you pass it on to the people who do deal with it. It's not Chelmsford Police Station's responsibility to deal with something out of Tullis and Darcy, although they took the first report. Mm. 